Our sponsor today is GLSA. Uh, for those non-members who may be dropping in on the call today, GLSA, or Group Legal Services Association, is an affiliate of the American Bar Association, is a professional membership representing the legal services plan industry and provider attorneys. And joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. Check it out at glsaonline.org. Okay, my name is Tom Martin. I'll be your host today. Our teleconference today is diversity and gender bias in the legal profession. I'm very excited to introduce you to today's guest. Um, I, I actually first met uh, Gina at the first TBD Law Conference um, in St. Louis. And let me tell you a little bit about her. She's the co-author of The Anxious Lawyer. It's an eight-week guide to joyful and satisfying law practice through mindfulness and meditation. She's been interviewed on MSNBC and Wall Street Journal. She is also a regular contributor to Forbes, Bloomberg, Lawyerist, and Huffington Post, where she covers resilience, work-life integration, wellness in the workplace, and she regularly speaks on women's issues, diversity, wellness, productivity, mindfulness, and meditation. So Gina, it's a pleasure to and an honor to have you on the show. Um, it sounds like you're extremely busy. I don't know how you balance it all. <laughs> you, you do speak about work-life balance, and it sounds like a heck of a lot to, to do. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tom. And uh, I understand you're in San Francisco today. Is it how's, it how's it going? Is it overcast? Staying cool? No, it's, it's a beautiful day. It's very typical San Francisco, 70-something degree weather. Well, that's great. Um, I know that in some other parts of the country, it's been quite wet or blistering. It's sort of uh, extremes right now. Yeah. But again, I want to thank you for making time for us this morning. I've heard such great things about you, and I've also uh, read for myself, and uh, I really appreciate the the viewpoint that you bring to our industry because, as you know, many lawyers are, are very uh, job intensive and we work, 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 and sometimes we work too much. And so I, I greatly, you know, I just wanted to say thank you for uh, your your point of view and trying to help other lawyers uh, lead a more balanced life when they can. Well, oh, thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. So our topic today, diversity and gender bias in the legal profession, um, I definitely want to get into that with you, and, and there's a lot to discuss. In fact, it's kind of unfair, I know, because we could talk for hours <laughs> about this. <laughs> but first, I wanted to to start with you. Uh, if you could tell us more about you. Like, where did you grow up, for example? Uh, sure. So I was born in Korea, and I came over to the U.S. with my family when I was 10 years old, and I lived in New York City until I went away to college to the University of Buffalo. I also went there for law school and I started my legal career as an assistant state attorney in Tampa, Florida, where I handled misdemeanors and domestic violence cases for a bunch of years. And then I moved to the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, where I started a bankruptcy law practice with my husband, which I still um, am, am a part of. So when you were a kid, is is becoming a lawyer something that you you wanted to do? Was that a dream or 
did it come up later? It was, and it was such a naive sort of understanding of what being a lawyer was. So I came over to the U.S. when I was 10, and none of us spoke any English. And I remember watching a lot of Law and Order, and it's part of how I sort of learned um, about the culture and learned to speak English, actually. And I remember watching those shows and thinking, oh, you know, if I can just become a prosecutor, I can sort of you know, um, right all the wrongs in the world, of course, very neatly in one hour, because, you know, all the jury verdicts come back, um, you know, always for the right party <laughs> within an hour. And I thought, oh, you know, I'd like to be a lawyer, because as an immigrant, I mean, we just ended up, um, you know, experiencing a lot of um, hardships and some level of discrimination and, um, you know, I guess some level of bias as well. And so I really just felt like if I can just be a prosecutor, I can really sort of do um, the right thing in the world, which, like I said, it was a very naive understanding of how the legal system works. You know, it just so happens that um, my youngest daughter is 10. And when you were just saying what you were saying, I was thinking, you know, if we had to to move to a different country, how, how that would be, um, especially a, a country where the language is different and, and have to get up, you know, to get used to that and and learn a different uh, culture and all that, what, how was that for you? I mean, was, was it a difficult transition? Was it easier? Did the people, um, the schools, make it easier, or what was your experience of that? Um, you know, it it was hard. Um, it was hard just adapting to a different culture, um, different food, uh, different people. Um, yeah, so I mean, it wasn't an easy transition, but I think just being 10, like you're still pretty malleable. And um, so I think I had a much easier time adapting than, you know, let's say my parents, who still to this day, um, you know, I think struggle on, on many levels. Okay. So let's talk about diversity and gender bias. I guess the first thing, you know, being lawyers, we want to define our terms and try to understand what it is um, we're, we're talking about. So when people talk about diversity, what do you have in mind? Like, what are your thoughts about that and gender bias? Uh, yeah, so I think about diversity in terms of diversity and inclusion. So having a workplace or, um, and I guess it could be like organizations as well, for example, bar associations where everyone feels welcome, right, regardless of their race, gender, um, ethnicity, uh, sexual preferences, their abilities or disabilities, um, really creating a place where everyone can feel like they belong. Okay. Do you think think some people feel unwel- unwelcome? Um, you know, I think it's, it's not, not because there's any intention of um, having people feel not welcomed, right? But it could be very unintentional. I think this is what often happens. So for example, I now travel across the country and I talk a lot about, um, you know, wellness and well-being and mindfulness and things like that. And it's not um, unusual for me to be the only person of color on a very long list of speakers list, right? Um, And very similarly, when I go to a lot of these conferences, it's not unusual for me to not see any people of color or Asians, more specifically, on the speaker's list. And there is this feeling like, 
oh, maybe I don't belong here because I don't see someone that I'm not reflected either in the speakers or even in the audience. So it's just that sense of, um, yeah, like not belonging, not because somebody said, well, you know, we don't want Asians here, <laughs> right? Like that, that would, wouldn't, um, wouldn't happen, but it's that feeling of not belonging because everybody else looks the same and you feel like an outsider. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and gender bias, is it, is it kind of the same or is there, is there some, something different about how gender bias plays out in, in, in the world than, than um, diversity? Yeah, so I think about gender bias and diversity and inclusion as sort of being related, but in different buckets. So when I talk about gender bias, basically these are patterns um, either as individuals or as an institution that we have that sort of stereotypes women and um, and we put different expectations on women than we do uh, for men. So, you know, there's lots of studies that talk about gender bias and typically it falls into these um, different patterns. So one pattern might be this idea of having to sort of prove things over and over and over again, more so than her male counterpart. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of research about interruptions, right? So women are interrupted at a much higher rate in a meeting than a man um, or idea stealing where women will say something and then everyone sort of glosses over it. 10 minutes later, a man in the room says the exact <laughs> same thing and says, and then everybody praises him for his great ideas. Um, and, you know, and I think women also sort of experience other gender bias, like the maternal wall might be another example where mothers um, are assumed to be sort of uncommitted to their jobs or in some instances incompetent. Um, and, you know, and there's like other types of patterns that just make it difficult for women to um, excel and, you know, climb the ladders at their jobs. And then, of course, we all have, are familiar with that concept of the glass ceiling as well, which is part of the gender bias. Definitely. And um, I have to admit for myself, I'm, you know, becoming more and more aware of of a lot of these things, some of which you, you talked about. Another one is just this kind of innate uh, tension that shouldn't be there, but it is sometimes, where, you know, when a woman is speaking about something, um, there's, and I guess we saw this play out with some conversations in, in Congress, um, but there's a tension between having a point of view and speaking your mind, whereas on the other side, um, there's this expectation of being nice about it, <laughs> you know, <Yep>. about, <laughs> yeah, about <laughs> being this, uh, but, but, you know, being aggressive, having a point of view, but still being a caring, you know, you know, warm, uh, nurturer. And, and so that seems very unfair to me. Um, yeah, that we should be likable. And you know, again, and there's a lot of studies that show women and men can say the exact same thing in the exact same tone. Like they've literally had people read the exact same script, right? And one in women's voice and one in man's voice. And the listener, whether it's a male or a female, will perceive the woman as being less likable or being um, more hostile. Um, and there's other words that we can use to describe um, her behavior that, that's mm -hmm. typically sort of framed, whereas, you know, man gets a pat on the back because he's being more 
um, assertive or aggressive. Um, so yeah, it's that like Goldilocks dilemma, right? You have to be assertive, but not too assertive. You have to be nice, but not too nice. And it's this, you know, and so we end up having to sort of contort ourselves to try to fit into this very, very narrow path. Um, and, you know, and whereas a male doesn't necessarily have that dilemma. Especially when the listener is, I mean, who knows who the listener is, right? They could be all over the spectrum in terms of what what their perception of of being nice and caring is. So, like, it, you can't, you know, you're going to upset somebody just like, I guess, with everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, let's, let's talk um, a little bit about examples just to kind of make it more concrete. So, with with diversity, like, we, I guess with a lack of it, you had mentioned um, conferences and and the the speaker um, makeup at at a at a conference. Are there other examples that you've experienced or seen in in uh, the legal industry uh, broadly where there's a lack of diversity? Uh, sure. I mean, I think certainly in you know the big law. I mean, there's the data is very clear that um, it's still very much dominated by white male, um, especially on the equity level partner or management positions. Um, and there's you know there's a leak where we're recruiting women at around the same rate as men going into big law, but that after about that four to five year mark, right around the time where you know, you're kind of being considered for a partnership, um, we tend to have a lot of attrition in terms of losing women and people of color in big law firms, which of course then has kind of makes up that lack of diversity on, on the management end of it or on the equity partner or just partners in general. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in terms of gender bias, are there any other examples that you'd want to Point out. Yeah, I had a really interesting conversation on Twitter about this, I guess, a few weeks ago. Okay. Um, and I, 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 you know, I've often been mistaken in courtrooms for either either being the Asian language interpreter um, or being the <laughs> assistant or the secretary. Um, and, and, you know, it was just really interesting because I think every woman that was part of this Twitter conversation said it was something very, very similar. Or for black male attorneys, they actually said, you know, I've been mistaken for a defendant, um, which I think often happens as well. Um, there's uh, it's, um, lawyer Brian Stevenson, who wrote this amazing book called Just Mercy, and he's, I think, argued seven times in front of the Supreme Court. And he writes very eloquently in his book about, you know, just standing around in the courtroom waiting for the judge to take the bench and the judge takes the bench and yells at him and says, where's your lawyer? <laughs> And he's like, wow. um, Your Honor, I am the lawyer. And the judge sort of laughs. And then, and then, uh, you know, Brian Stevenson has this sense of like, oh, I have to sort of laugh along because I don't want the judge to be offended and therefore somehow ruled negatively against my client. So, you know, I right. think these are all sort of racial bias or gender bias. Um, you know, and, and I and I think a lot of these are implicit, right? So we might it might not even be conscious. I'm sure the judge didn't think, oh, you know, he's black um, and, you know, I'm going to say this because, you know, it's just a lot of these are implicit biases. Yeah. And 
you know, I, th I think that's one of the, one of the, it seems like a stumbling block with conversations about, about diversity and inclusion, because it almost immediately, you know, there's a rush to, to defense, right? And the defense is, well, I didn't, you know, that wasn't intentional. Um, mm -hmm. How, how do we get at that? You know, like how, how, how is it possible to, because kind of by definition, if it's not unintentional and it's not something that's really um, thought through, how do we get at that and change it for the better? Yeah, and I think this is one of those hot topics right now, right, whether um, implicit biases can actually be fixed or addressed. And, um, and it seems like there's arguments on both sides that because it's implicit that there's no way to kind of get at it. Um, and there's also this interesting body of research that, that's coming out that's suggesting that practicing mindfulness can help you to be more self-aware. Um, and to me, that makes perfect sense because when we're practicing mindfulness, um, we're actually slowing things down and actually looking at our behaviors. And so just having that moment of pause between the, you know, whatever you see, right, and whatever your reaction is going to be then allows you to have a choice in the matter. Um, there's also a really interesting test, um, and for the listeners out there, you can just Google. Um, it's called Project Implicit from Harvard Education, and you can go in and test um, and see if you have different implicit biases. And, and I took the test, and I was kind of surprised that I had implicit bias as well. So um, I guess that's also kind of worth mentioning that. Um, you know, I think probably most of us have implicit biases. And in fact, I know everybody has an implicit bias, right? Like, why do you prefer um, chocolate ice cream versus vanilla ice cream? Well, you know, we have yeah. a bias towards that particular flavor of ice cream. It's just we want to bring these biases up to the surface. So like I said, we can actually make um, a more conscious or a more uh, decision based out of awareness. I'd love to check that out. What what where is it again? That question. Um, it's, it's, it's implicit. It's implicit.harvard.edu. Um, and I'm looking at the site right now. So you can test your implicit bias around um, Arab Muslims, race, gender, uh, you know, sexuality, age, weight, um, Native Americans, disability, Asian, skin tones, religion. Um, so it's a really interesting test. Wow. And you, and I think even taking a test like that and just seeing, and it tells you whether you have no no bias or if you have a favorable view of that particular group of people or very favorable, or if you have um, some bias or a very strong bias. So I think it, it can kind of give you a sense or, you know, kind of hold a mirror up to a bias that you may have that you may not even be aware of. Well, I think kudos to whoever... Uh came up with those questions because especially if somebody is going to a questionnaire to answer questions about bias, they're going to see, you know, like they're going to see those questions coming from a mile away. So they had to put them together in a very subtle way to, to get that, to get at that um, and get some. Yeah. The, the implicit um, Harvard test is actually a really interesting test because basically what it shows is that we all have these implicit bias. Um, as in we categorize things as something being good or something being bad. Um, so it's 
so the test is sort of designed to test like almost your subconscious. So you'll get words like, um, you know, happy. And then you, of course, would, um, and it's like, you know, if it's like happy, if you associate that word as being good, then you push a button on the right. And then if you think of the word like evil, then you would click bad. So you do good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. And then it'll actually start to um, have like uh, pictures of people of different skin tones. And you have to then say good, bad, good, bad. And it's, so it's almost like design. It's not like asking mm. you, well, do you have favorable or unfavorable ideas about people of color? Because, of course, everyone would say, well, I don't. So it's really right. designed to test the implicit bias. So earlier you mentioned as um, one way of um, trying to get at implicit bias, mindfulness. And I know yeah. you, you've written the book on it. So can, can you um, tell me a little bit more about what is that? Like, what, what is mindfulness? Um, yeah, so mindfulness means to be in the present moment without preference and judgment. Um, I often think about being mindful as paying attention to what is actually happening in the moment with this attitude or um, this like sort of bringing your most compassionate self into the picture. So we can pay attention to something and put all of our focus on it, but I'm sure you've had this experience where you're paying attention to something because you're like super irritated, right? So you're coming at it with this tone of irritation and that's going to sort of um, tarnish or that's going to filter how you view that particular situation. So you know, actually coming with this attitude of empathy, curiosity, compassion to whatever the situation may be. All right. Well, I guess, I mean, everyone knows that um, there, there's been quite a bit of uh, energy uh, in the air related to these topics um, recently. And I, I'm, I'm just Curious, have you yourself, have you noticed a change in the tenor of discussion about diversity and gender bias in the last year? Um, you know, it's interesting. I've been practicing law for 14 years, and I feel like diversity and inclusion has been a hot topic for all of those 14 years. And yeah. it seems like every year, you know, we do the study that shows, oh, you know, we're not making a whole lot of forward progress on diversity and inclusion and then the next year, the same thing happens, and the next year, the same thing happens, and all of these companies are trying to, you know, implement different programs to increase diversity and inclusion. Um, but, you know, it doesn't seem like any one of them are particularly that successful. I mean, and I just say that in the sense that I don't think there's any, let's say, M100 law firm that have um, gender ba balance, for example, and especially on, on the partner level. Um, so, yeah, I, and I don't know. And I think maybe these conversations have become more heated um, just more recently, um, you know, just because of our political landscape right now. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I'll just leave it at that. All right. And so one thing you hit on um, with law firms, and I think this is lawyers in general, because we, you know, when we deal with any problem, uh, we try to approach it, um, or I guess the stereotype is we try to approach it from a, a very logical, um, analytical point of view. And so one thing that comes of, of that, 
that I've seen very often are policies, right? Oh, well, we need to come up with mm -hmm. a policy for this. How, I mean, do, do policies help at all? And do, I mean, do they help to promote actions rather than words? What has been your experience with, with that? You know, I think it's much easier to um, come up with policies and have a written document that says we care about diversity and inclusion, much harder to take actions, right? Um, so if you're sitting around, let's say, at a partnership meeting and you notice there's no one of color, is someone in that room going to be brave enough to point that out and say, hey, we have a problem here? Um, or if you're sitting around a room and there's no uh, woman, a woman speaker, woman, you know, partner um, at the table, is someone going to be brave enough to actually point that out? Um, and so, you know, I think I think most law firms now have some sort of a statement on inclusion, diversity and inclusion. I don't know that. And it's hard, you know, because I think there is, a, you know, I want to just make it very, I want to just say um, that people just, innately feel most comfortable with people that look like them, that talk like them, that have similar backgrounds, right? It's that sense of belonging. Um, so it, it may be difficult, um, especially if you're not, if you weren't sort of raised in a very diverse environment to, um, you know, associate with people that are very different from you. Well, okay, so let me ask you a question from kind of the an, from the devil's advocate standpoint or like another another point of view like i i know that some people people might ask like well how do, how does it help you know like people that sometimes look at the bottom line right is it yep. is yeah. diversity and, and I, is, is i'm sorry go ahead no go ahead i was going to say you know is inclusion and the elimination of gender bias good for business like does it add to the bottom line or or doesn't it yeah it's a diversity on all levels right i mean i think often when we talk about diversity we focus on either race or gender but you know just having diversity across the spectrum there's there's so many studies that um, show that diversity and inclusion having a more diverse workplace is better for the bottom line. And the reason is because it brings people with different backgrounds, um, with different ways of looking at a problem, right? So they're going to have different ideas about how to solve this particular problem versus if you have, you know, let's say all um, Stanford law graduate who are all white male, because they're going to look at the world with a very specific prism. Um, and I will also say that a lot of the studies that show um, that you know diverse groups actually perform much better but there's also um, studies that show that diverse groups also um, experience more conflict which also makes sense right because if everyone sitting around the room basically says oh yeah that's a great idea let's just go with that because that's sort of the one way that they've always solved problems um then that creates a more of a harmonious group um, or atmosphere versus if you have 10 very very diverse um, people who all have very different ways of solving a problem, there's going to be more of a um, dispute or let's say a, a conversation about how to best solve the problem, but it's exactly that, right? It's exactly that sort of having everybody bring different point of views and actually having to talk through it 
and consider every idea that makes the team really, really strong and allows for the best ideas to bubble up. And when I hear you say that, it it seems like that should be something that's it should be something that's natural to lawyers, right? Because we're we're trained to to argue and, and to when we litigate have two opposite points of view battling, you know, for which is the better idea. Um, and so you would think that within the workplace context, um, that would be a way we would approach things is to have diverse points of view. Um, yeah, and, and I also I think that there can be many, many different strategies and many, many different ways of solving a particular legal issue or problem. Um, and some of it may be tainted by our backgrounds or even the way that we um, communicate with clients may be very, very different because of our background, right? Um, and so I think as lawyers, we like to think about things as being very binary, um, but that there's many, many different shades of gray. And um, and that's really what we want to actually try to foster more of, that there isn't just one particular strategy that um, is the best strategy. So in terms of those strategies, what, what, what can lawyers and law firms do? Um, to improve diversity and gender equality? Like what are a, a few things that you, you would recommend to them to try to focus on and work on to actually improve things, not just come up with a policy? Yeah, I think on an individual level, um, you know, just kind of look around at your social circle. Um, so I did this, I, I read an article about um, about having diversity in like the people that you follow on Twitter. And and once I read that, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So I actually looked back and looked at my Twitter followers and it wasn't very diverse. And I was actually kind of surprised. Um, so I actually, you know, made a point to follow, you know, lots of different people with lots of different ideas, a lot of ideas that I necessarily may not agree with. Um, and so I think that's one way that we can all increase um, diversity in our, in our, you know, what we can do as individuals, right? It's just, and that's a fairly simple thing that you can do is just look at your Twitter feed and say, okay, do I have diversity in my Twitter feed? And if you're just following all, let's say, you know, white, other white people, you might say, oh, um, I want to try to have more of a varying points of view. So that's one simple, and there's, um, I think if you just Google, uh, with something like gender diversity on Twitter followers, you can actually get a breakdown of um, percentages of women versus men that you follow on Twitter. I haven't been able to find one for um, for a race, but that would be kind of a cool thing to do. Um, and also, you know, I think as like as you sort of move about your day, right? If you're sitting in a in a meeting at a law firm, or if you're on a planning committee um, for a, a, a function at a bar association, just actually looking around the room and saying, is this group diverse? You know, are we actually being inclusive? Or does everybody else in this room look like um, carbon copies of me? Um, I, don't, I think often, you know, like I said, there's this sense like we like to hang out with people that look like us, that talk like us, and then so we just kind of go out and attract those people. 
Um, and the other thing that I want to just kind of caution against, and I've seen this sort of happen over and over and over again, is um, you know typically in conference settings, um, you'll have let's say ten organizers, and they'll say, oh, okay, well we have like nine white organizers, so we need to get one person of color, and then that person is then sort of charged with bringing diversity and inclusion to the conference, then that person sort of gets blamed if that doesn't work. And, and, and that strategy is just proven to fail, right? Because diversity and inclusion requires everyone's efforts. Like it really does require everyone um, to be just more mindful about who am I reaching out to? Um, and if I'm just reaching out to my immediate circle of friends and inviting them to speak, for example, is that group diverse? Um, and often it's not going to be. So then you may actually have to, you know, kind of look out, um, you know, sort of tap into maybe your third, third or fourth level of connections um, to find people that you know, are going to be different from you. That's going to bring different perspectives to the, um, to the conference. Yeah, it seems like everyone should be involved, right? Everyone should be right. involved. In being inclusive because I think that's what inclusivity is about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I've seen some um, amazing examples of like, especially in, in the tech industry of CEOs, basically, um, you know, there was one instance at South by Southwest where it was like, I can't remember exactly what the topic was, but it was literally like nine white male lawyers sitting on the panel. And the one guy actually said like, <laughs> I'm just noticing that there's a lack of diversity and inclusion here. And I happen to know that amazing woman sitting in the front row would actually be a much better speaker for this panel than I would. So he gave up his seat for her and it made like big news and, you know, everyone wow. kind of like, like went crazy over it. But, you know, I think there is that, um, you ha it, it takes courage, I think, to say like, Hey, um, we have a problem here. Right. Um, and I'll often do this is when I'm invited to speak, I'll ask them like, who are the other speakers? And I'll just look them up and I'll like very kindly um, email them and say, you know, diversity and inclusion is really important to me. And I notice you only have 10% women speakers or that you only have one out of 80 people that are of color or you have no one that's a person of color when you have 80 speakers. Um, and oftentimes the organizers actually really appreciative because they're just not aware, right? It's not anything they're doing consciously. It's it's an it's an implicit bias. So they'll say, "Oh my gosh, that that you're right. That is a problem." And often they'll kind of you know scramble to um, go out and find other speakers. So for for the lawyers and law firms that are hearing this and they really do want to improve, are there any resources out there that they can turn to to, to help them? Um, yeah, I think the implicit test that I already talked about is a really good resource. Um, let's see, there's a really good website on, called, one second, I can look this up. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think if you just like just Google, you know, like diversity and inclusion projects, there's probably a, at least a hundred different projects out there that um, are all sort of trying to help people um, create a more inclusive environment. There's one called Project Include. Um, that's really good. There's actually um, a startup here in San Francisco called Paradigm 
and paradigm is actually going into companies and helping them come up with strategic plans to um, to increase diversity and inclusion. And what's interesting about paradigm is that everything they do is measured. I mean, I think mm. that's also really, really important, and I, and I want to emphasize that it's not just enough to say we want to have more diversity and inclusion. Well, that's really nice, but you really need data behind it. So actually collecting um, data. Uh, there's also a consulting company called August, um, and they don't necessarily work with people uh, or companies on increasing, in, increasing diversity and inclusion, but they are really mindful and thoughtful about creating the most diverse team possible. Um, and they actually have a really great survey, because I think that's another area where it can be a little bit tricky to ask people to sort of self-identify and say, you know, like what, how do you identify yourself as race? And I think they have a really great um, way of framing. So rather than saying, you know, check one of these boxes, um, I think the way they phrase it is like, um, you know, with what uh, ethnicity do you most strongly identify yourself as? Because someone might not present as, you know, Asian or Black or Muslim or whatever it may be, right? But that they, but they self-identify as being um, Black or, you know, whatever that group might be. Um, so I think they have a really great example of surveys that you can um, administer you know, it's within your organization to get a feel for your makeup. Well, those are some really great resources. Um, thank you for that. Uh, do you do you think we'll ever uh, realize this vision of a, you know the, the country and you know Martin Luther King's um, vision of equality? Do you think that that's something that's achievable? I, I think so, and and it will happen. Like it's not a me it's not a question of whether it's going to happen. It will happen because we know from the data that the makeup of the United States is becoming more and more diverse. Um, and there's a Pew research that says something like by like 2040, we're not going to have any majority race in the United States. So. Um, and I think this is something that's really important for companies to think about, right? Because in the next couple of decades, um, like white, you know, in that very generic um, use of the word will no longer be the majority. And mm -hmm. so if you're only tailoring to that, you know, to that group of people, and if you're only hiring from that pool, um, I think it, you know, it, I think it's questionable whether your company is going to be as successful as it possibly can be. And I think that's one of the perhaps more compelling reasons for why you need a diverse work workforce. Definitely. Well, thank you, Gina. I, I loved getting to know you better and learn more about the challenges that we have with uh, achieving true diversity and gender equality and why it's important and some ways of uh, implementing changes to, to make it a reality. Um, oh, thank I, you. I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Fantastic. I, I, I like to ask sort of a off the beaten path question at the end. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what's a place on your bucket list that you've never visited that you'd like to and why? Is there some place uh, that you haven't India. gone yet? Yeah, um, India. I love going on meditation retreats. Uh, it's one of my just like I love having that quiet and being able to unplug um, but all the retreats meditations retreats 
I've gone to has been in the U.S. and I'd love to just go sort of to the motherland of where uh, mindfulness and meditation sort of originated from and um, yeah and then just go and you know I just imagine myself on like some very isolated uh, meditation center somewhere in India and just being like truly disconnected and unplugged and in a very very different environment so that's where I would love to go. That, that sounds amazing. Like I, I would love to do that too. Be unplugged for once. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Gina, I just want to thank you again for sharing uh, your time and thoughts. Um, how can our audience uh, keep in touch with you? Yeah. Um, so I'm very active on Twitter. It's Gina J E E N A underscore C H O. They can also visit my website, um, theanxiouslawyer.com, or if anyone wants to drop me an email, my email address is smile at theanxiouslawyer.com. Great. Um, and if we have questions, I'll, I'll forward them on to you, and they can keep in touch with you, as you just said. Um, yeah, and... I, I would love that. Cool. Uh, so thank you all for attending our teleconference today, Diversity and Gender Bias in the Legal Profession with Gina Cho. Uh, again, this is Tom Martin. I just want to thank GLSA for sponsoring. Remember, joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. Check us out at glsaonline.org. Thank you, Gina. Thank you. All right. Bye.